favorite Sundays because I get to talk to you from my pastor's heart for our church and our community. Uh, these are our vision Sundays. We spend about uh, a couple of weeks talking about vision, where God is leading us into 2019. And the reason I want to share this is not just that's good information. Thank you, Kelly, for sharing. I want to share this today because we're all a part of helping to see this mission, this vision we have become a reality in 2019 and beyond. All right? So what I typically do is I, I highlight a few things um, that we're going to focus on in the new year. I mean, it's not really the new year anymore, right? We're already in almost at March, but that we're going to focus on this year intentionally as a church. I think we're doing a lot of right things, but I have to pay attention to the things that we're, that we're currently ignoring or just not quite exceeding in. But before we get into that, though, I, I just want you to imagine with me for a minute. I want you to imagine that you are at a family gathering with extended family. Maybe it's Christmas or it's Thanksgiving and, and you're all around the table. How many have memories of being around the table with multiple generations of your family? Maybe it was Thanksgiving, Christmas, maybe it was Easter. I don't know when you gather as a family, but I have fond memories as a kid of gathering with multiple generations around the table and playing games together, singing songs with, the, with my mom's side of the family. We'd be musical together. And uh, that's been a tradition I've enjoyed even now contemporarily still as a dad of my own and my own kids and now a grandfather. Um, here's a picture I just want to show because I love family. This is actually the Stutzman side of the family, uh, my wife's side of the family, because that's the better looking side of the family. Uh, just kidding. I don't know. How it's, I mean, they are very handsome and beautiful ladies, um, handsome men, beautiful ladies. Um, this was taken several years back, but it was one, around one of those occasions when the family was together. And we have four generations in this picture. And I love looking at pictures like this because it reminds me of the beauty and the diversity of family. That family is really about all generations coming together, living together, encouraging one another, being there for one another. Now, I want you for a second to imagine with me that you're at a family gathering and suppose over the decades, some of the generation within your family started to feel that maybe these family gatherings were not essential for their life. Or maybe they began to think that the family doesn't need me there. They're just fine without me. So what I've done is I've created a series of pictures. Let's go to the first one, if you will, please, Terry. This is my family, and I'm picking on my family because I can't pick on yours, all right? So we just staged a few pictures, and the reason behind this is I want to illustrate a point, okay? So let's pretend this is a family gathering. Let's say it's Thanksgiving, and the Dufour family is gathered around the table. But you'll notice something looking at this picture. At least I hope you notice some things. Maybe you notice there's a few empty seats around the table. And as you look around the table, the question is, who's missing from the picture? Now, if you knew my family, you would know that 12, soon to be 13, members of the family are missing from around this table. That is a lot of family missing from the table. In fact, you, you could basically, it means that 15 of the 27 family members are not present. All right? Let's go to the next picture, because this kind of shows an example of the generation that's missing. Um, one of them is present, and he's got his back turned to us wearing a stocking cap, and that would be my, my son, who is the oldest of my, of my kids. Um, but where are his age generation? They're missing from the table. Now, what I think is interesting is we see some of their kids there. Some of the kids of the missing people around, around the table 
Because maybe those grandparents felt like, well, it's really important for my grandkids to be at these family events. Even if you don't want to come, it's important for them to be here because this thing is important for our family and important for them, and it's certainly going to help them. And so grandkids might be present, but the parents aren't. Now, what would happen to this family if this trend continued, this dynamic continued? Let's go to the next picture, Terry. This picture just kind of shows me and my siblings. Because now my children and my grandchildren may not be present around the table. Because a generation stopped showing up to the table. It impacts the rest of the table. And what if this trend continued? Let's go to the next picture. This is what inevitably would happen to the family table. Now, how many of you, if this was your family, would be okay with this? If this represented your family gathering? Not many of us. We look at that and go, this is not okay. There's far too many family members missing from the table. Now, while hopefully this isn't a problem around your table, and it certainly isn't on the do-for table, I, in fact, I, I'm happy to tell you, our family's doing great. In fact, today we're having a family gathering. We have monthly family gatherings where we go to my parents' house, and the kids, grandkids, great-grandkids are there, and, and we have family meals together. But unfortunately, this is happening to another segment of family called the church family. And this, my friends, is not a problem just at neighborhood church. This is a problem in churches across America. In fact, if some of you were church shopping, perhaps, before you came to neighborhood church, you might have visited some churches in our own community, and this is what you would have seen for their church family gathering. This is what you would have seen. Last week, we had the crosses, missionaries that we are uh, connecting with that are going to Spain. Remember them here last week? I I visited with them during lunch and said, so talk to me about some of the churches that you visited throughout Oregon, because they have a lot of kids. Maybe you noticed that when they were here, a lot of young kids. And uh, they said, man, there were some churches where there were no children's ministries, no nursery. There were no youth. They had the rooms. They had the space. They were empty. And this, my friends, is something that should not be. This should not be the case. And so the first initiative I want to talk about in Vision 2019 is the idea of leave no generation out. Leave no generation out. Now, the reality is some of you in the room are the age of my parents and my grandmother sitting in this room going, okay, Kelly, what does that mean for us, right? I mean, no generation left out. What are we going to do about us? Don't don't get worried. Don't storm out of here. I want you to hear what I believe is not just a good vision for 2019. I believe this is a biblical concept that we have to understand because we are people who live according to Scripture, right? This is something that is not new. So all throughout Scripture, you see God's desire that every generation, each and every generation would know him, would come to follow his principles, and would serve his mission. And we see it all throughout Scripture. What I love about the way God moves throughout the Bible is he's no respecter of persons or generations, right? I mean, you see him working through uh, Abraham and Sarah, and they're, well, kindly put, they're well advanced in years, all right? And then you have like Samuel, who's a little boy, or you have David, who's a young lad, or you have Esther, who was appointed into the kingdom for such a time as this, and you see God continuing to move throughout multiple generations, genders, and I love that that is the God that we serve. 
And what we see kind of as a big idea throughout all the Bible is this, that God's covenant love and his purposes are for each generation. So that's kind of where I want to set the tone for today and help us understand as we unpack this further, the mandate we have as a church is not just a vision for neighborhood. This is a Bible thing. And all the more reason why we should take this extremely seriously in 2019. I want to take you, if you wouldn't mind, to Genesis 17. And by the way, if you use the Bible app, the YouVersion Bible app, if that's on your smart device, we encourage you to use that. Our notes are there. If you go to menu, you'll see more and then events, and then you'll find Neighborhood Church and those. Also go to our website right now on your smart device, albanync.org, and you can get notes there by following the, the messages tab. Or... Whew, There's so many options for you. Number three would be some of you have been brave enough to download the church app from your favorite app store. You just search for Share Faith Neighborhood Church, and there it is, and it pushes the notes to you. Sometimes you have to refresh the app, but it will update you with the notes. So I really encourage you, especially on this one, to get this uh, to your device. Genesis 17. This is one of those times that God appears to Abraham, not the first time, but one of several times now that he appears to Abraham. And, and what he's doing, he's singling out Abraham and Sarah for a purpose, all right? He has a plan for them. And the reality is they're well advanced in years. Let's look at it. Uh, when Abram was 99 years old, how many 99-year-olds do we have in the room? Some of you might feel like it today, but okay. So you get the idea. They were not done. Some of you that are on the older spectrum, you're thinking like, isn't it my time to retire? I mean, can I just take it easy from the work of God? The Bible's not going to back you up, all right? 99 years old, God has a plan. The Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. Now listen to the covenant. You will be the father of many nations. Verse 5, no longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. How many generations do we see right there? Right there, we just see three. You, your descendants, and those after you for generations to come, which means to perpetuity. That's the word I was looking for. It just keeps going. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So God's plan, when he, when he picked Abraham and it formed a nation that was that, this isn't just about you, Abraham. See, and this is the part we have to understand. While Abraham was going to be blessed, what God was in essence was saying is, Abraham, this isn't just about you. And how many of us need to hear that when it comes to church? It is not just about you, okay? The point was, in you and through you, I'm going to bless generations. But you've got to be an active part of it, Abraham. It's not just about you. But it will work through you and in you. So he had a part to play, but it wasn't his own. It was to be a blessing to generations, which brings kind of the next point, and here it is, that God commands that older generations inform and influence the faith of younger generations. This is what God hardwired into the covenant he made to Abraham, and that covenant would get more definition as the Bible rolls out in, in the Old Testament, okay? But now we see this idea that the older generation has a responsibility, and that is to inform and influence. And I use those two words for a very specific purpose. Okay, we 
are okay as a church at informing generations. Okay? They're going to come to church. They're going to hear stories from God's word. They're going to be informed. What we are not doing as well as a church, and I believe as churches across America, is influencing the next generation. That's life on life. That's, that's not just talking about it. That's actually being close enough in proximity to each other to influence each other. Let's look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is kind of the, the holy creed of the Jewish people. This is called their Shema. It was the document that was central to their belief system. All right? And we'll unpack it here quickly. It begins at verse 1. The actual Shema is a little bit later, but here it goes. These are the commands, decrees, and the laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you. So he's talking about all the stuff that Moses received on Mount Sinai, about the commandments, the law, all those things, right? To teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. This is before the promised land. So they're kind of staging to go into their land of promise. They've been in there 40 years, wandering in the wilderness. So that you, verse 2, your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you so that you may enjoy long life. Verse 3, hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, your, the God of your ancestors promised you. Hear, O Israel. Here's kind of the now the root of the Shema. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. So where does it start? It starts individually. We're going to come back to this. On your hearts. But now look where it moves. Verse 7. Impress them on your children. How does impression happen? ever taken something and had it impressed my kids every when every kid well at least the first two kids were born um, they received a little um, kind of personal library stamp that would stamp their books with an impression that had their name this book belongs to and it would be Jameson Dean Dufour it takes the page and impresses it okay this means there's close contact over a long at least in the case of this one over a long period of time that's how impression happens. So impress them on your children. That's talking about relational living, life on life, daily discipleship, all right? Talk about the, uh, them, the, the rules, when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. By the way, if you're not talking about the commands, you'll be talking about your kids, okay? I'm just being honest with you, all right? It's either we're going to talk about the commands or we're going to talk about the woes and troubles we're having with our kids. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings them to the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of a land of slavery. So it starts with us. The impression is here. We pass it to our children in daily interaction. Notice it's all house stuff, right? Not your home. Talk about it when you're up and down. It's life on life discipleship. It's being together. And because of that, when that generation continues to move forward, they won't forget. because They'll be impressed on them. So the next thing I want to talk about then is this, that, that there are personal and cultural consequences for failing to develop the faith of younger generations. 
I want you to see what happens. So we, we get this great challenge from Moses before they go into the promised land. But now I want to pick the story up when basically what has happened is Joshua, who becomes the one who leads Israel into their land of promise to conquest, to take over the land. They, they move in, the conquest happens, Israel is establishing throughout their promised land. They get into their land, but there are still challenges. Why? Because they're humans just like us, right? Prone to disobedience, prone to forget, all right? Judges chapter 2 picks up the story. So Judges kind of follows the story of Joshua's conquest into the, the age of the judges who were raised up to help Israel return to God, all right? But in the very front of this book, listen to this. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. In other words, they had stories to tell and show of God. And Joshua saw him. I mean, Joshua was there when the Red Sea was parted. Joshua was there when God provided miraculously for the people of Israel in their wanderings in the wilderness 40 years. He saw all of this. And he had this firsthand experience with God that he imparted to the next generation. But let's continue on. Verse 8, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Herez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaosh. After that, here's the key. After that whole generation, Joshua's generation, and had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. What happened? The generation that didn't receive the impression, who did not receive personally or experience in dynamic ways personally the, the power and the moving of God, became a generation that forsook him, turned away and instead turn toward God. What happened? There, will, there were cultural and personal consequences. The nation of Israel continued to turn their back on God. How many can see that today we are dealing with personal and cultural consequences because we have generations that are turning away from God, or at least from the faith of their parents? So next point then, faith is meant to be embraced personally and shared generationally. And here's the part we really cannot miss. We don't want to disconnect these two pieces. I'm glad that this is probably full of people who have embraced Christ as Savior, and I'm glad you're here. But it doesn't stop here. The mandate that we are seeing is that we embrace the God of our fathers or mothers, or that we embrace God personally. It's here. It's us. But then it's meant to be shared generationally. Psalm 78, verse 1 through 7. Listen to what David says. My people, Hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us, which means they were doing their part, right? We will not hide them 
from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. So we see, we're to embrace it personally. It's got to start here, but then end here. It's designed and, and, and meant to be shared generationally with your kids, your grandkids, or in the context of a church setting with our next generations. What we know is not to be kept to ourselves. We will tell, share, influence the next generation. Now, next point then, the future of the church and the success of its mission is dependent on multi-generational discipleship. Now, all these stories up to this point were Old Testament. And, I, and for the most part, the message continued, right? Because when Jesus came, people knew God. They knew the word of God. But how many know there was a high level of corruption within the religion into which Jesus stepped into, right? Um, it was a, another time that people's hearts were maybe turning away from God relationally and just exchanging it for religion. So we see this thing happening. We have a whole cluster of people who are turned off by the church, drawn to guys like John the Baptist because he's preaching with power and communication about God in a way that's dynamically different than the religious leaders. And so he's drawing crowds into the wilderness, making the way for who? Jesus who would come. And Jesus' ministry was multi-generational. There were children, there were parents, there were grandparents. When he fed the 5,000, it was family groups that he was, that he was ministering to because Jesus' mission was multi-generational. Now, when Jesus died and rose again, he commissioned his disciples. Many of you know it. Let me read it to you again, Matthew 28, 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now this, my friends, is the mission of the church, and this will never change. This is why we exist. Jesus gave us the mission. We don't have to guess what the church should do. This tells us. But the methods of how we do that have changed over generations, and you've seen that. But the method changes the mission doesn't we see that jesus gave us the mission what i love now is paul uh, peter i should say picks up this concept the day of pentecost acts chapter 2 the holy spirit fell empowered the disciples and those that were gathered and prayed but it was peter who stood up and defended what was happening and preached to those that were gathering and in his sermon he says this acts 238 peter replied repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. The mission would have to be preserved because people did this. They repented of their sins, they received the Holy Spirit, and that promise was also for their children. And we see that as the, as the churches in the book of Acts are shown to us, we see those gatherings being multi-generational gatherings. People coming together 
sharing life together as family groups, not just on Sunday at 9 or 1045, but really doing life together. And we saw that take place. Ephesians 3.20, Paul speaks about it this way. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine according to his power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So the gospel of Jesus, the power of God, not meant to skip any generation. It was meant to be for all generations. And so here's the point. The Bible reveals God's desire for multi-generational faith development. So how are we doing as a church then? When we talk about the Bible's mandate to be a place that is multi-generational, where we are discipling all ages, how are we doing as a church? Are there any generations that are underrepresented at Neighborhood Church? Is there any generation missing from the, quote, neighborhood table to kind of come back to my opening illustration? Well, what I want to do is I want to show you just some data. Thanks to many of you who turned in this the data we already had, we kind of went through, updated, and then we laid it against the data of our community. So I pulled resources from 2018 for the city of Albany. And what I decided to do was look at percentages. So this next graph shows us age groupings and the percentage of those within our church, which is green, and the community, which is blue. Now, there's a few things I want to draw out that I think are awesome that I want you to see. Uh, First of all, Um, we're pretty close to the zero to four-year-olds as far as who's in the church and who's in the community, representation of our city. We do have babies and preschoolers here because you're bringing them, and some of you, you're bringing your grandkids, okay? That's wonderful. Uh, Look at our children. 15 to 13-year-olds, we are uh, almost twice as much as the city represented here. Why? Because we got some big families that attend neighborhood church. That's partly why, um, because we got some sizable families. The average family in Oregon is, or in Albany is uh, two kids. It's like 1.75 kids, but who wants a 0.75 kid, right? So, um, <laughs> so you get the idea. So we have some big families. That kind of inflates the numbers a bit. We also have kids who come with kids. Because some of you are inviting your friends' kids to come, and they're coming on a regular basis. So those numbers look great. What does that mean? That means in children's ministries, we are doing it. And these kids are coming regularly. These are regular attenders, not people who came once and said they came to Neighborhood Church. This is ongoing, continual attendance. So we pulled our data from what we call our regular attenders and members, not our visitors. Okay, that would highly inflate. We have 1,000 people in our database that are, that are uh, regular attenders, members, and visitors. But when it comes to actual attenders and members, we're more in the category of 400 to 450, okay? Let's move on. Um, 14 to 17-year-olds, look at that. Um, We're higher than the community represented. That means our youth ministry is working. We have students coming, bringing friends to youth ministries on midweek and on Sundays. And this shows us that we are above our community as far as just representation of youth here. Okay? And that means youth ministry is, is successful, is working. Here's what concerns me. Look at the next age category. As we go to 18 to 24-year-olds, it almost flips from 14 to 17-year-olds. We have an underrepresentation of 18 to 24-year-olds in our church compared to our community, which means they're around us, friends. They're here. They're just not here, here around our table. 
as they should be. Uh, look at the next age group. Should that alarm any of us? 25 to 34 year olds. Less than our 18 to 24 year olds percentage wise here. These are our young families. These are our young marrieds, young families. And they're underrepresented in our church. But then we even out, right? Look at our next age categories. Those who are 45 to 54, 55 and so forth, 65, we pretty much mirror for the most part our community. Within one to two percentage points, um, we're kind of right in the ballpark of being right there. So the good news is in a lot of our generations, we are a mere reflection of our community. And my goal has always been to be a pastor who leads a church that is a fair representation of its community, which means if all we were were 65-year-olds and up, we're not representing our community. So I feel like our mission to a point has been very successful, and I don't uh, under, <laughs> I, I want to make sure I, I'm saying clearly, every generation that's here is important, and that shouldn't change, because we are a good representation of life in our community, except in the generation of 18 to 35-year-olds. This generation, friends, has been labeled the millennials. Perhaps some of you have done some research on generations. These are our millennials for the most part. Some of the different numbers factor into what age starts millennial, but this is primarily our millennials. Now, beyond that, we represent pretty well Gen Z, but I am worried about Generation Z in our culture coming up behind our millennials. I'm worried about the high degree of children who are making decisions at a younger age to be atheist. And there are moorings for that decision. Why is that happening, right? So I'm concerned, and we're going to keep a strong effort to our children and youth, but right now we have adulting people, 18 to 35-year-olds, who are absolutely missing. Now, what I used to hear was this, and you probably heard the same thing. In fact, just maybe a show of hands. How many of you, when you were 18 to 24-year-old, you took a break from church? Okay, so we can see this happens because it does. Many of you grew up in church. By the time you got to be 18, it's like, I'm done for a while with church. In fact, the number one reason why 18 to 24-year-olds leave the church is because they want to take a break from church. Why? Because you were drug babies. You were drugged to church, right? Just, all right, so you wanted, to get, you wanted to get a break. And I get that. And what we used to hear in generations past was, great, but they're going to come back. They're going to come back because when they have kids and they need, you know, they're going to come back to church because they're going to recognize the decisions they're making when they're 18 to 24 years old aren't always the best life decisions, and they certainly don't want that to become the norm for their family, so they return. Here's the problem. They're not returning now. And that's what our numbers here are showing us. Yes, we do have 18 to 24-year-olds here, but our next age group that's missing is showing us they're not returning to the church like they used to. So I'm concerned, friends, for the missing generation, the millennials from our church. And you should be too. Because I would be heartbroken if we had a family gathering and none of my kids, none of my nephews or nieces that were 18 to 24 or 18 to 35 now came. I'd be heartbroken. Why don't we feel the same when that's happening to us right here at Neighborhood Church? We should be heartbroken over this finding because that means, friends, if this trend continues, then we become the final picture I showed you of that family table. We age together, we die together, and that's it. So I feel burdened. In fact, let me just make this, uh, next slide, please. 
Terry, this is just our church. So to kind of remove kind of the noise of community and all that, just want to show you from our perspective, again, just the adults who call neighborhood church home. We need to double those numbers of 18 to 35-year-olds. Those need to double to meet up with the community and with where we are is an equal representation of our church. But they're not here. So now let's make it personal to you. Let's take a moment here and just kind of pull the crowd. How many of you know somebody 18 to 35 years old, who used to be in the faith community in some capacity, no longer in the faith community actively today. Raise a hand if that's you. You know somebody who's 18 to 35. Keep your hands up. 18 to 35 who are not, they used to, but they're not now. Okay, keep your hands up. How many of you have a family member, 18 to 35 years old, who is no longer attending church currently, um, but they're in your family? Okay, keep your hands up. How many of you have your children, 18 to 35? So this is going to limit a few, okay? Your kids, 18 to 35-year-olds, in this community who are not going to church on a regular basis. Okay, friends, here is the point. This is what brings it home. I know it grieves you that your kids who once loved church are no longer actively engaged because they don't find it essential for them today. I know that breaks your heart. And it should break our heart as we come together around the neighborhood family and say, this should grieve us, that we have a generation slipping away. This millennial generation, we must not leave behind, but unless things change as a church, we will continue to miss them. So here's a quote from David Kinneman, who wrote a great book called You Lost Me. And I, and I think every adult of an 18 to 35-year-old or any burdened Christian concerned about the millennial generation that's gone from church should read this book, You Lost Me, by David Kinneman. In fact, right now it's on special. If you're a Kindle reader, it's $6.99 on Amazon. Go buy it. He says this, the ages 18 to 29 are the black hole of church attendance, missing in action from most congregations. And my goal isn't to bore you with stats, but I need you to hear this from Thomas Rayner and his son, Sam, who also wrote a book. Their, their book was called Essential Church, dealing with this issue of becoming a multi-generational church, no generation left behind, right? He says this, more than two-thirds of young church-going adults in America drop out of church between the ages of 18 and 22, and our numbers back that up. We see that, okay? They interviewed a 20-something in fact, the book, Essential Church, they interviewed quite a few, but one of them said this when asked why he stopped attending. He said, nothing big or negative caused me to stop attending church. It just came to a point that I did not see the church as essential to my life. Now, I know church doesn't save people. Jesus does. But how many know that we need accountability? We need to be with each other. Churches need multiple generations there for each other. The Bible backs that up. We know that's true. Listen to this. Two simple facts. And I want you to go back to this next graphic again for me, Terry, because I, I want to just illustrate this point. Teenagers are some of the most religiously active Americans, and it's true for us. Strong youth ministries, you know, you might look at what's happening under the hood in those youth ministries, but regardless, we have students that are engaged in church life, Okay. That's wonderful, but the paradox of the other foot that falls is the American 20-somethings are the least religiously active. So how, in just a matter of two years, can that turn so dramatic? The problem is not that this generation has been less churched. 
They've been churched. Just like generations previously. It's not because we stopped having Sunday school. It's not because we stopped. Those ministries and the youth that are here are still here. The problem is that much spiritual energy fades away during this crucial decade of their life when they're making some big life decisions. And all of a sudden, their Sunday school answers don't solve their adult questions. And here's the problem. They try to bring them to the church, and the church ignores their questions. They try to bring him to a caring adult, and they go, yeah, 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 yeah. You got to go talk to the pastor about that. So they don't feel like they have any ability to bring the angst they feel when their Sunday school faith meets real life. And I believe God can answer those questions through us. So they find the church not essential for them. They can't bring their issues here. The other things that we see is the culture they live in is becoming directly opposite of the culture of the church. And they don't like the church's views on things like gender, sexuality, uh, which we call biblical truth that we're trying to uphold. They don't understand why we view that because we haven't answered their questions. So they make up their own or their peer group informs them about those things, which are, by the way, self-defeating in a lot of ways. The consequences of a generation missing from biblical truth and from discipleship in a multiple context. Um, what David Kinnaman said, and I don't have a quote on the screen for this, but listen to it. He says, millions of young adults leave active involvement in the church as they exit their teen years. Some never return while others live indefinitely at the margins of the faith community, attempting to define their own spirituality. So they're nomads out there. They're not connected. They're kind of putting together their own faith Uh, and it can be dangerous what they're doing, they're still spiritually hungry, people. That doesn't go away. But they're answering those spiritual questions in ways that are not biblically wholesome. And then David Kinnaman says this, the dropout problem is at its core a faith development problem. It's a discipleship problem. The church is not adequately preparing the next generation to follow Christ faithfully in a rapidly changing world. Culture And this is not a youth pastor needs to work harder thing because we have the youth here. The problem is when they transition to adulthood, where are the mentoring, caring adults who will help them wrestle with life decisions, questions, coaching them, mentoring them, sharing wisdom from their own past experiences to help this generation make good decisions? They're absent. Why? Because churches have become silos where we hang out with our age group and our age group alone, and we don't recognize that church is not about me. It's about multiple generations gathering together. What I love about going to my parents' house with my kids and my grandkids is when we go there for dinner, we're all hanging out together. The kids don't go to the kids' room and play kid games. The adults don't go over here to the table, and the senior adults go over here and play, I don't know, Parcheesi. You know, that's not happening. We are coming together as a family, doing life together as a family. And if that's what your family does, that's healthy. But when the church doesn't do that, it's dangerous. And we miss a generation. But you're going, but Kelly, I've heard these, these young adults don't want our input. They don't want our opinion. Yes, they do. And they're not generally going to ask you for it, per se. But when's the last time you've been in close enough proximity to somebody younger than you to just let life on life help them? Maybe it's a coworker. 
Maybe it's a kid. One of the things we're continuing to hear loudly from young adults, especially 18, 24-year-olds, I don't have any adult, quote, older adult friends except my parents. Now, how many of you know there's some conversations young adults need that a parent might not have with them? And they need somebody else speaking into their life. I'm so glad that I'm a product of older adults that cared about me and invested time with me, offered to take me to lunch, offered to take me out for a pop. Why? Just to get to know me and have a conversation with me that I might have another influence besides just my parents. My parents, by the way, were great to have other adult families around, and some of those adults ended up mentoring me in ways they never knew. And how many of you know the same thing can happen backwards, where you can learn some things from a younger generation and some reverse mentoring happens. You're going, oh my goodness, I'm learning some important stuff from my kids or from my kids' friends. The church has got to get a better handle on this. Now, here's the reality. I don't have answers to this, but I can tell you we're on a process right now with a team of people from our church our leadership team and some others, who are being coached through a process of making this one of our critical mission, uh, mission critical initiatives for this year, that we get our handles around how to be more aggressively connecting to the millennial generation in our community. So what does that mean? I can't answer all those questions for you right now, but it does mean we're going to try some things to intentionally connect to 18, 24-year-olds or 25-year-olds and 35-year-olds. That doesn't mean programming on Sundays will change much. But it does mean the way we do life groups, the way we connect relationally, because here's what you know. Disciples are not mass-produced. It's not like you sit here in rows, I invest in you like we're some kind of a Ford assembly line where you get all the stuff you need and you leave here, and we're disciples now. You know, discipleship is not mass-produced. It's one person at a time, life on life. That's how people grow. And if you're strong in your Christian faith today, it's because somebody took the time to invest in you. That's discipleship. So how do we get there? We have to recognize as a church that we are individually, yes, each one of us, individually responsible and we're corporately responsible to do something about this. Because if we don't, we're not only going to miss millennials, we're going to miss Generation Z and Generation Y or the alpha generation behind them. If we don't start paying attention to the lights on our dashboard, friends, this church will grow old and lose its effectiveness in a community who continues to grow younger. So what do we have to do? Pray. Pray for your leadership. Pray for those of us who are exploring these questions, reading these books, talking to millennials, and finding out why they walked away. Why is the church not essential? What can we do to help you? Those are conversations we're having, and we need your prayers as we continue to move forward to that. Because one of my, one of my goals is that we would have 20% of our church in the 20 to 35 years age by 2020. That's my goal. By the end of that year, 2020, I want to see these numbers change dramatically. I want to reflect our community more evenly. Why is that important? Let me just tell you this story, and, I, and I'm done. After the First World War, a Great Depression swept throughout Europe. A generation, a young generation became disillusioned, and they became disgusted by their church leadership and by their political leadership. And in that angst, they felt somebody rose up. And, and rallied these young Germans who were looking for a different way to go. 
a different path to move forward, a different voice to listen to. And this leader rallied them and challenged them and excited them and got them on board. And his name was Adolf Hitler. And we know what happens when a generation who needs leadership finds it from the wrong person. So there are generations today listening to a lot of voices. They're the most digitally connected generation ever. They're hearing a lot of voices, following a lot of leads. And parents, grandparents, they're probably voices you don't want them listening to. They're not giving them great advice for the future, but they're listening. They're looking for somebody. Shouldn't we be there? Shouldn't we be at that table with them to have those conversations? Yes. And by God's grace and help, we will. Throughout the rest of 2019, into 2020, we're praying for our families. And here's the challenge to you personally. If your millennial lives here in town, not, they're not going anywhere. Maybe you need to start having a conversation about why. And then share the information forward with us as a church. And maybe you'll be surprised. The church you enjoy isn't the church they enjoy. And maybe some things, the way we do some things in groups has to change. Or the way we do things on other gatherings has to change. But we're willing to do that. Why? Because the mission is always more important than the method. And if we can't get the mission right, then we're in trouble. So let's pray. Father, as we end this day today, I know this hasn't been a feel-good message for all of us in this room, but we can't ignore this. Because our vision for this church is important. What you want to do in the city of Albany is important. As I ministered even this week to a a couple in this age group whose four-month-old died, Those are the people who need the hope of Jesus and need us in close proximity to them to care about them and to love them. So, Lord, this message, while it's for our church, corporately, it's for each one of us individually. What are we going to do as we think about our kids and our grandkids right here in our community that aren't even engaged in the faith at all? We pray for them right now. That, God, you would give us wisdom as a church to know how to connect them. You'd give them wisdom as parents and grandparents, how to connect in more intentionally relational ways with that generation to make sure that the hope of Christ that's in us becomes the hope they can see in us, and it's impressed upon them, and they find the hope they're looking for. So, God, help us. As we're on this journey this year, we pray for wisdom from above. You know what this generation needs, as you have with every generation. And you'll give us the creativity to do that. And we're going to thank you right now that this time next year, we're going to look back and see what you've begun and have done as we have trusted you for it. So we thank you for it right now in Christ's name. Amen.